You're listening to the Big Speak Podcast, a program populated by the voices of thought leaders, successful CEOs, and renowned entrepreneurs. We'll hear their exclusive tips, behind-the-scenes insights, and off-the-record stories, pieces of knowledge only available from Big Speak's unique slate of keynote speakers and business leaders. During these episodes, we'll meet just a few of the best speakers in the business, learn their unique skill sets that enabled them to inspire audiences on the biggest stages in the world. Inspiration begins now. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I am so thrilled to have social entrepreneur and the founder of Seven Virtues, Barb Stegman, here in the studio. Barb, welcome to Santa Barbara. Oh, my God. Thank you. I want to move here. Oh, well, you, there's uh, we have 1% vacancy, and that's enough for you. <laughs> I was hooked once I watched the soap opera Santa Barbara as oh a my, child in Canada. Oh my gosh! Right, yeah. We're, we all live like that. It's it's really truly that was. I felt it. That was reality television. <laughs> it's beautiful. This place, all jokes aside, has an incredible energy. Well, you've traveled mm. all over the world. Mm-hmm. Where was the spot? I love surprises, right? Mm. We have these stereotypes of places, and, and you, you don't visit the fun places, no. right? You visit the places that that are really challenged. Mm-hmm. So, tell me about the one that was more challenged than you thought. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, going to Haiti after a hurricane and, you know, seeing some of the, the challenges between the corruption and, and trying to rebuild that place. And the people are so beautiful. It's heartbreaking. But it, it was uh, really Puerto Rico that kind of shocked me. I'll tell you, you know, uh, we went there with Chef Jose Andres, who's done a lot for uh, feeding people around the world. Just beautiful work. And, uh, you know, even Haiti has essential oils you can buy and, and do trade and give people dignity and put dignity back in the supply chain. And there was really nothing in Puerto Rico, and, and it was uh, eye-opening. So we're going to uh, participate in a conference and really help farmers to shake out ideas around the kinds of crops they're going to harvest. Uh, because if you harvest mangoes, let's say, and they spoil, you're, you have no money. But essential oils, which are hot right now, uh, can last for years. In fact, they can improve. So it's a, a lucrative income. So it's about uh, really starting from scratch in some ways. So I didn't realize that Puerto Rico uh, was that bad off. Uh, I really didn't. Um, so that was kind of surprising to me. I'm thinking now we recently had the hurricane that took out I mean, that one whole island in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, are essential oils, and we'll get into why essential Mm -hmm. oils are important to you, but is that something that you can kind of find anywhere? Or are there special locations for that? For essential oils? Yeah. I mean, any hot place can grow them. Uh, For me, because I'm a social entrepreneur, it has to be grassroots. So uh, the way I sort of fell into this was my supplier originally in Afghanistan, who had his own distillery led by the community. You know, not us going in and telling people how to do things, but they already grew the distillery and they started teaching us. Same in Rwanda, Nicholas uh, Hitamana, who has his distillery helping farmers who survived the genocide. It it comes from a a center of influence in the community that says, hey, this is really lucrative for our community. Uh, We don't have to worry about uh, the spoilage of a harvest. This could really change people's lives. So, you know, they're earning three times the income over the next coffee crop in Rwanda and Afghanistan. It's twice over the illegal poppy. So, you know, when you look at 
the power of essential oils and the clean beauty movement that's happening out there, you've really got something huge. So, so we've never been historically ones to go in and say you need to grow essential oils. What we're doing now is when the community hosts a conference, we're happy to bring a panel of experts from Rwanda who've done it and and peer-to-peer and buyers like us to say, this is what it looks like if this is something you're considering, if this can be an alternative to you, you know, really cross-pollinate those ideas, literally. Uh, uh, so that's exciting. But again, it still has to be led by the community, but we'll share those ideas and best practices, and, and but the ownership has to be by the people, uh, which is crucial in any kind of international development. Barb, I want to go back to the beginning, actually before the beginning. And um, I, I, some people might say, yeah, you're a mom and you're, you know, you're accomplished. And all of a sudden this terrible thing happens. And, and we're assuming people know your story. It's very well known. How did you get from mom to best friend to seven virtues we know that story right that's it's a tragic story mm-hmm. but what was the snap for you where mm-hmm. you went oh yeah that's what I, I i'm really like that specific moment if you could put me in that setting yeah where that hit you well you know after being raised in poverty and finally having a normal life you know living in the suburbs having my own company my children you know the things you dream about when you live in poverty breaking that cycle it was quite an accomplishment and it was a normal life and then all of a sudden everything went upside down my best friend and mentor from university uh, was sitting in a peaceful shura in afghanistan discussing how to bring clean drinking water and health care to the families of the village and a man who did not want to see his community have free thought or free will put a taliban axe through my best friend's head and uh, you know he wasn't supposed to make it through the night and uh, suddenly you look at your life completely differently and uh, you know truly one of the most important people that ever believed in me in my life at one of the biggest turning points for me uh, I wasn't I just couldn't stand back and, and watch this. We had to do something together. And I went to the hospital. Uh, I was blessed. I had my own company, so I could visit him twice a week. And so while I was in the hospital, that's the moment. I said to him, you heal. I got this. And then I realized I live in a patriarchy. I don't got this. How can I take on his mission of peace? I'm not a brave soldier. I'm not a world leader. I had no way to touch peace. And so I really reflected and, 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 and did some soul searching. And I thought, wait a second. Women own the buying power. Women own the voting power. You know, what if we could harness that power and actually really break the cycle of war and poverty? And as citizens, stop expecting our military and government to do all the heavy lifting. Where are we, as innovative people, coming up with solutions? So that was really where I, I wrote the book, The Seven Virtues of a Philosopher Queen. I thought, how come women, how come we have not really cracked that code uh, on really having equality in government and business, well, it's a language that stems back to Plato and Socrates, that stoic wisdom that Churchill and Aurelius and all the boys used during war and strife. And you know, our moms didn't talk to us about Adam Smith and capitalism or Plato and the polis. And I thought, let me just start with taking that stoic wisdom and giving it to my sisters so they can run for office, launch companies, end bullying. And uh, took two years to write launched on International Women's Day on my visa card, broke even that weekend, uh, and within a year, I read about Abdullah in Afghanistan, this gentleman who was growing the legal crops, orange and rose, instead of the illegal poppy, and the same people that attacked my best friend were knocking over his distillery, and I knew that was the way to bring the thesis to life. 
I'd been talking about this idea that women own the buying power. I could finally show it. I flew to Ottawa within a week, met with CEDA, which is like the USAID, so it's Canadian International Development Agency, and said, help me find Abdullah, and that was it. Found him, started buying his oils on my visa card. Again, banks wouldn't give me a loan. Uh, and uh, found myself on Dragon's Den, which is like Shark Tank, um, to, try to, to try to get some investment, because back then, 10 years ago, we didn't have a word for it. Social enterprise, I didn't even know what that meant. I just knew that I couldn't do nothing. Uh, and that's really, that aha uh -huh was in the hospital. It was that moment where I went, no, I'm not just gonna sit here and, and have his mission be in vain. I call that a tap on the shoulder. Mm -hmm. The universe tapped you on the shoulder. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are kind of numb to that and they don't recognize that moment. Mm -hmm. How did you know that was a moment? I've always worked on being present. It's daily practice, daily practice, daily practice, but if, if you're present, everything you need will appear. It's how I've navigated my way out of a trailer on welfare, just by being present. And so when you're present and you're not worried with fear or the clutter of what someone thinks about you, and you're actually focused on being brave, you know, living the virtues, seeking truth, being filled with wonder, you know, instead of being jaded and, and not judging yourself. And, and really, you, like a muscle, you rip it and suddenly you're brave and you're, you're finding all the resources you need. They're there in front of all of us. And, you know, it's funny because I wrote a book on this. It still freaks me out that if you follow these principles, they can't fail you if you're present. And I think the, the challenge for those who may be missing those signs uh, is that they're worried about what someone thinks about them. Look, I was made fun of. <laughs> Tabloid. I couldn't go grocery store shopping. Yeah, I was on the cover all the time being made fun of. How dare she think she's going to help Afghanistan? Paid no attention to it. It hurt. I'm not going to pretend it didn't hurt, but I went to my family. I said to my son when he'd come home from the schoolyard, he'd be made fun of for it. I said, do, do you believe that when we want to change the world, we have to take a step and just start? We're not going to fix it overnight, but let's just start. Is it the right thing to do? He fully agreed with me. I knew my family was with me, and now we're the largest orange blossom oil buyer from Abdullah in Afghanistan. Uh, he almost gave up. Imagine what he faces in his world. And if I can't handle the odd person making fun, whatever. But the breakthrough is, if you're present and you do not listen to those who make fun and you focus on what you're doing, the rewards are there. And I think that's where people fall off. I think people become concerned with what, what will they think of me? Who cares? You know, 20% of the people are never going to like you anyway. It doesn't matter. So let's dive into that, because one of the audiences that you love to talk to, or at least talk about, are millennials. And we're really interested in multi-generational mm. communication and where communication breaks down, especially in the workforce. Mm -hmm. And I know you go out and you talk to that kind of group where mm -hmm. for the first time in history, we have six generations alive at the same time, four in the workplace, boomers going out the door and Zoomers coming in the door, mm -hmm. right? And so you're talking to a group of people who are antithetical to what you just said. They care, like, is this picture? make me look pretty is this thing I'm doing look likable is it all of those things that you just railed against mm -hmm. how do you convince that huge population to your point of view 
You know, it's almost like when you've had too much sugar and someone brings you broccoli and you go, thank God, Jesus, just give me the broccoli. That's really what it is. So the millennials so are saying, it's easy. thanks for the broccoli. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the broccoli lady, not the perfume lady at all. You know, so I come in and I care more about, you know, you. How's your day going? I don't really ask them to buy. I work with millennials all across my talks, Sephora stores. I visit as many as possible, and there's hugs and tears, and we jump up and down. And I'm millennial in spirit. Deep down, millennials, what's so beautiful and unique about them outside of this social media world that they're living in is they care. You know, nine out of ten millennials will switch brands for one with a cause. They care deeply. They don't necessarily want to be in a cubicle uh, working towards the retirement plan. They want to go on adventure. They want to they go to these countries. They want to experience things. And so they really connect with me on that level. And then just by osmosis, the stuff falls away. The clutter falls away because we're focusing on, you know, the seventh virtue in my book is beauty, but beauty in the Michelangelo sense. And I talk about that. Michelangelo, one of the greatest artists, philosophers, believe that, you know, beauty is expression over form. So what's form? That would be posing in your photo or twiggy era, your skinny renaissance, your voluptuous. He'd say, that's not your beauty. That's your form. Your beauty is your expression, and that is your power and your dignity. That is your beauty. Never hand it over. Never strip another of theirs will be fine and when you start communicating that to young people they they relate to that my beauty is my power my dignity and i'm never handing it over and so then all of their actions become wiser and and a little more stoic and thoughtful and then they can they can just naturally remove the clutter on their own because that's what it is really stoic wisdom is about having the ability uh, to make your own decisions and and be strong of character and mind and joyous and, uh, and and you have to be able to have that skill on your own so by bringing those virtues and telling stories they're able to connect with that and apply it to their own lives and so I think it's probably the strangest uh, perfume training ever when I go into Sephora because suddenly it's it's all about Plato and Socrates and Mary Wollstonecraft and Michelangelo and it's it's really lovely. It's just different. You as someone who stared in the eyes of thousands of these people as you're talking to them, tell me what it's like when you recognize that they got it. Mm. It's almost like in Plato's Republic, in the cave, the analogy of the cave, that we're all living in the shadows and we need to see the light. You can hear the chains drop. I can hear the chains drop, and I know. And it's through sighs or awes or tears. Uh, and so the delivery has to have some relief, too, because when people are doing all that awakening, you can really uh, see that. So it's time to crack a joke. You, you know, a self-deprecating joke, because I'm from the Maritimes. And so we just give people a break. <laughs> hold, and, it, hold, you know. it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Because I'm from the Maritimes. <laughs> Poorest region in Canada. And if you can't laugh at yourself, you're not going to make it. <laughs> You can't take yourself seriously, and you're no better than anybody, and your problems are no bigger than anybody else's. Uh, uh, so, so it's uh, we've learned to laugh at ourselves, and I think that's the relief when someone you can tell is is doing a lot of awakening and and realizing, you know, I need to remove some people from my life. That's a big one, you know, helping people realize frenemies have no place in your life. Um, and and to help them make that change. So it's interesting because you can go in under the 
you know, concept of we're going to talk about stoic wisdom, maybe in a conference, or I'm coming to Sephora to train you and we're talking about perfume. But at the end of the day, it's still about your personal life. People are going through things. And, and there's a way to blend the two so that you can strengthen your uh, professional career, but also get back to your own answers in your personal life. And I think that's why it's such a unique, well-received message uh, that resonates with, you were talking about every generation. Every generation connects with it, but I think a lot of uh, uh, millennials are not necessarily receiving this, and I think that it's refreshing for them. When were you first introduced to the classics? Because they obviously have had a huge impact on your life. I'm a, I'm a Leonardo junkie. Um, I admit it. I'm a full nerd for him. We love him. And I'm curious, that first taste of that, and you, you said, oh, this is it. I mean, you, it just spoke to you. Tell me about mm. that. I think I was always, by necessity, uh, out of poverty, a natural philosopher uh, before I actually began to read. And then I felt I was at home. And so, uh, you know, when, when people would make fun or it, because you're poor or, or people would doubt you, or underestimate you, you learn to listen to your own voice, your instinct, whatever you want to call it. Some call it God, some call it instinct. You can call it whatever you want. But we have, a, and even Socrates and Plato would tell you that you, you have your own track, and if you're present, you go on that to your journey. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's sort of preset. And I somehow honed the skill in survival to listen to that instinct. So when I wanted to study uh, philosophy at the University of King's College, um, I went to my guidance counselor and I asked for the application. I knew I needed to study philosophy. And he said, I don't have the application. And he said, uh, you're going to study at St. Evex, where I lived. But I, because we were so poor, I had made the pizzas at the student union building and worked 20 hours a week so we could feed our family and bring home the broken muffins and whatever was left over. And I didn't want to be labeled or branded as the girl that made their pizzas because she was so poor. So I needed a fresh start. And he said, nope. Here's your application to St. of X. Of course, we have no money. My mother's sick. Uh, you had no internet then. It's 1986. And... Uh, I just did what you do. I, I said, so you got to get to Halifax, go get an application, come back home and apply. So uh, there's a bus at the end of the road, dirt road. And, you know, it's so funny in a small town. Just go out at 2 o'clock, the bus will be there. Like there's no station, no terminal, no sign, no rule. Sure enough, at <laughs> 2 o'clock, the bus comes. I get on it, go to King's, get the application, get back on the bus, go back home, only applied to King's, got in. One of those first moments where you realize that you just screamed out loud, you know. And when I got in, the strangest thing happened. There was only one other person from my school at King's, and it was the guidance counselor's daughter. Well, wait, now, how'd she get the application? Do you know what? That never crossed my mind. I actually felt sad for her because she had no friends. Years later, I was sitting, receiving some award for economic development in my home province, and my mom was sitting on the couch, and she said, you know, your Latin teacher said you should have gotten that scholarship to King's. I said, what scholarship? Apparently, that's why the guidance counselor didn't give me the application. He was terrified because I was an honors, too, that I might get that scholarship. But here's the beauty of the story. In life... Everything's going to come at you. I love one of my favorite quotes by Marcus Aurelius, one of the greatest soldiers, philosophers, wrote the meditations. When you wake up, be prepared to meet the angry, the lost, the jealous, the jaded. Now lead. 
What, you don't like that? Well, then go in the fetal position in the corner because you are now in the game of life and leadership. So the beauty of really living that kind of mentality was I don't take it personally. When you wake up, be prepared to meet the angry, the lost, the jealous, the jaded. I did. And then I went over it, around it, got there. And even though I never got the scholarship, I'm really glad I didn't. So when I started giving talks to high school students saying, you know it took me 14 years to pay off my degrees, my ex-husband's degrees. It's worth it because it tastes better when you earned it. I don't think I would have had the same story if I had a scholarship. So so my attitude is, is very philosophical in terms of just going and doing it. So then, of course, at King's, I did the Foundation Year program, which was all the humanities and the philosophers. That's where we were, you know, read Plato and Socrates. And I'll never forget... Um, um, finding uh, Philo, one of my favorite philosophers, on my own in a secondhand bookstore years later, I wept. You know, I, I, I felt at home for the first time. I had found thinking that belonged to me, and I wasn't uh, strange or different. I was home. And, and so philosophy was a homecoming for me. And so when, when Captain Green was wounded in Afghanistan, my solace was to return to those books. Uh, we'd canceled our cable after 9-11 because uh, as a news junkie, I was overwhelmed and I, I felt it was time to go do something about the world. Uh, and so I spent those two years, literally four o'clock in the morning, reading Socrates and Plato. I didn't want to read any modern books. I wanted to go right back to the classics and the Stoics uh, and keep it pure, uh, but make it for everyday people. Very, very important because often philosophy is in the universities and it's everyday people that deserve the Stoic wisdom. So I feel very excited that I get to go to stores, Sephora stores or conferences and, and, and no matter what the person's background is, everybody can relate to this and they have a right to it uh, because it can't fail you. This is the thing. Tell me about the first time you got up in front of people and you spoke <laughs> and you said, oh, I, I like this. Well, you know, I think there's a few stories I have for you. They're adorable little stories. We had a club called 4-H. Uh, I say H because of the Irish background. And uh, uh, it, it really was great because you learned. I learned more about marketing because you you, you had your fruit flan in the in the fair, and, and it didn't matter if it tasted better. It was what was presented better won the red ribbon, and you got two dollars. That was very exciting. But they also had public speaking, and I went up against my sister. My sister is a PhD in virology. She's a genius. Imagine trailing her, and I'm up against her, and she's speaking about roller mania, which is very modern. Roller uh, skating has come back. It's the hottest thing. This is I don't know in the 80s, and. Uh, I get up there and talk about cats and nailed it in one against my sister and I thought oh my god I took this simple subject and was able to do this and then of course it's not a direct path I go into another presentation with a girlfriend of mine some mobiles we made and the girls in the front row were sisters uh, started making us laugh I ruined it. I blew it. I was laughing so hard that I was crying. It was just a mess. And, uh, you know, I'm just really grateful that that didn't stop me. I kept doing it, kept doing it. And, uh, you know, your 10,000 hours. Um, but I remember, I think, one of the stories that um, I'll never forget was in grade 10, 
we had to do one of those class presentations and uh, we were doing William Wordsworth's uh, poem The World is Too Much with Us and my girlfriend Kelly was William Wordsworth and I was a journalist and the class was rowdy because Kelly was the pretty girl and all the boys were all worked up and everyone's loud and there they are up front and I remember I began to speak and everything went quiet and I rem I'll never forget the room and then my teacher, uh, Leo McDonald, at the back of the room said, my maiden name was Robbins, he said, Barbara Robbins, if you're ever unsure of what to do in life, become a journalist. I never forgot that. And then when I went back home to speak at the Chamber of Commerce in my, Commerce in my little town, I invited that teacher, Leo McDonald, to come and sit with the mayor. I got to thank him. That must have been epic for both of you. We'll never forget that moment. Right. And I traveled across, across England to go thank my Latin teacher, too, uh, who believed in me. Uh, I think you've got to go back and thank those teachers who were the ones that gave you those defining moments, those... I think there's a poem called about December Roses, and the idea is through life, you know, we all know at the end, if we're blessed to get that far, nobody's going to know who we were. Okay, let's be serious. Everyone's going to be gone. You're all alone. They're called December Roses, and they're those moments, those moments that are so precious, and you record them in your mind, and you can go back and replay them. So every time a December rose happens in my life, I go, there's a December rose, and I bank it. And so at the very end, when I'm 96 and everyone's gone, I'm just going to enjoy reliving all these blessed moments, my December roses, and that was one. I'm never, and you can, go, you can be there. I can transport myself and be in that room uh, in a moment and it's a wonderful feeling and it it keeps you uh, grateful and humble and connected to the people that really did help you awaken as well right we don't ju we just don't sort of wake up and and become it's people along the way and it's it's equal parts the people that don't believe in you and underestimate you you have to thank them too because they make you work harder and it's a dance between the two i think you have to have a balance between enough people that believe in you and enough people that underestimate you to fire you up Right, there's, there's got to be that, that balance. I have a feeling that there are going to be people in a future life who may be on this show who said, you know, there was this woman named Barb, <laughs> and I saw her in a Sephora, <laughs> and she just touched me in such an amazing way. I'm curious how, and I, what I love about your uh, Socratic method is I'm all about questions. I live for interesting questions. So in that we're mano y mano, and I appreciate knowing that about you. I'm curious from the part you were an entrepreneur, you had a business, and then mm -hmm. you went out and, and this snap of, of going out and creating this other kind of business mm -hmm. and and before social entrepreneur was a thing and social innovation was a thing you were just like i'm doing this thing and we we've talked about that but what was it that got you from being that social entrepreneur and being all in on running the business mm -hmm. to speaking about that and seeing that now we're not talking about the thing, as you've already explained with the Michelangelo quote. We're talking mm -hmm. about how I feel about the thing, mm -hmm. and, right? It's mm -hmm. not the thing. Mm -hmm. It's this. Right. This is what's important. And now you, you say on your website that the most fun you have is about the emotion of, of speaking to mm -hmm. people. Tell me about that transition where you came home and you talked to your husband and he said, this is this is it. 
Yeah, it was it was really organic, and it was kind of before the perfume. It was because the book came first, and I'll never forget sitting with my journalism prof, Kim Kierens, and her partner Ian, who was a big CBC journalist as well. I was just about to publish the book, The Seven Virtues of a Philosopher Queen, and he said, "How are you going to get these books to the people?" And I said, "They're going to call me," and they did. How do you know that? Is that did you visualize that, or was that predestined I don't know we'll never know the mystery to the end but that's exactly what happened people just began to call me and ask me to come speak and I went wherever I was asked I drove white knuckled uh, through snowstorms for seven people in a library in rural Nova Scotia it, wherever they wanted me I would go and 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 with that came um, this passion for you know waking people up uh, to Stoic wisdom in their lives. And so that was really my original ambition. And then the perfume company happened, and, and I'm allowed to now take that uh, philosophy uh, into corporate settings. And I think that, you know, I was just talking about this the other day, uh, Forbes ranked their 100 top leaders. There's only one woman in the leadership, and the metrics were based on return on investment, the ROI. There was no ROL. There was no return on love. There was no leadership that is, you know, helping the planet or reversing uh, issues of war and poverty. That was not part of the metrics. And so, you know, I'm kind of on a, on a mission here is to wake people up that the ROL, the return on love, is as important as the return on investment. And that's the only way we're going to get to a healthier planet. And we can all participate in that. And I want to ignite corporations to look at how they uh, use the supply chain and dignity in the supply chain. I want to use that to ignite, if it's a young person at Sephora, to maybe be a social entrepreneur, to take that passion for something that's not working in the world and go do something about it. And and I, I, I'm blessed that I get to be a real-life example of someone who went up against the naysayers, the banks, Kevin O'Leary on Dragon's Den. You know, I, I, I've, I've stood my ground, and I have the right to share that it's, it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it, and you have the power to do it, whatever that is, whether it's improving the supply chain, helping to end corruption, the kinds of issues we see out there, having a discussion about ethics, having a discussion about personal joy and protecting it, and all the key things that help you go and do a much better job in your life professionally, love your family, be a better friend, all those things that are really crucial to just enjoying this wonderful time that we're so fortunate that we got to be born in North America. Oh my God. Like anybody that's whining about something, I'm like, just stop. <laughs> Your soul could have been born anywhere on this planet and you were born here. Even where a girl like me in poverty still has public school, libraries, roads, anything you want can happen. Barb, I feel like you're you're an old soul, and a and a soul found you and said, "I want to be in this body." And actually, I was just talking about that last night. I don't know why it chose this body because here's the deal: I've got anxiety. I have a hearing impairment. I'm a woman. I was raised in poverty. I'm half Jewish, half Catholic. I mean, you couldn't have any more things going on in my conflicted, guilt-ridden life. But here's my thing. I was given this incredibly divine soul that I don't even feel worthy of, and everyone was, actually. It's just about when you realize that and honor it. And so the challenge is my broken 
human mortal body doesn't feel worthy of this divine soul. And all I can do every day is to try to build my character to be a little more worthy of this soul. And the dance will be, as I approach 96, by the time I get to 96, the two will be one. And I'll have been worthy, and it'll have been a fabulous journey. And that's the trip. And it's not just my trip. This applies to everyone. And when you wake up to that, you're kinder to yourself because you are a broken mortal human with broken bits. And you have this divine soul that you need to listen to, and you got to get out of the way of it. And knowing when to get out of the way and let it do its service on this earth, but also at the same time to be kind to yourself because we're mortal. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to mess up. That's okay. We're going to learn. But to try to build your character every day to try to do the right thing is a muscle. And the more you build it, the wiser you become, the kinder you become, the more successful you become, the more you can share with others and lift. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary. And this applies to every one of us. I think that's my key obsession is I want that the chains to drop and for people to stop paying attention to their to their media feed and the perfect life that everyone's presenting and what advertising's telling them they need and get back to their own answers so they can have that wonderful journey too right Barb this meant I was I was going to ask what moms should tell their daughters but I, I don't want to isolate it to that because I mm -hmm. think that what you just finished saying everybody needs to hear and I appreciate hearing that I, I'm curious how is it that you and Big Speak got together yeah because otherwise I wouldn't be sitting here getting to talk to you yeah it's a great story this is a great story I was sitting with my husband uh, reading in the Globe and Mail and uh, I had read that Kevin O'Leary who did not invest in me on Dragon's Den but that's okay I got to open for Kevin in Halifax right after Dragon's Den aired which is you know like Shark Tank and uh, oh my god my community thought that we were going to duke it out you know oh they're going to go and I thanked him I thanked him. I said, you've got to thank the people that challenge you because you'll want to rise up. And then afterwards, when I got to the table, Kevin leans in because we're at the head table together. He goes, great job. And I said, yeah. And he goes, you're in all 90 Hudson's Bay stores. That's when we started. And I said, yeah. He goes, I missed the boat. I said, yeah, you did. It felt good to be a little vindicated, you know. So fast forward, I see that Kevin's taken a chance and he's um, running for the leader of the conservative party. And the way that... Uh, repayment of your campaign runs in Can Canadian rules is you have to actually uh, fundraise to get the money back. He can't actually pay back his um, campaign with his own money. So he had the sharks in the castle. All the sharks came, uh, and it was, um, you know, several hundred dollars. And uh, I looked at my husband. I said, I'm in Toronto anyway giving a talk. I should go to this. I think, I don't know what could happen, but I should go to this. I think it could be interesting. And I said, there's a tax write-off for this. And I said, what do you think? He goes, look, you're being flown in anyway to give a talk. Go. I said, okay, I'm going to go. So I go online to buy a ticket, and it didn't work. And so there was an email. It was Nancy. Uh, Nancy at O'Leary, you know, the, the, the email address. And I wrote her and I said, hi, I'd, I'd like to support Kevin at this event, um, but I can't seem to, my visa won't work online. And so within 30 minutes, she wrote me back and said, I just found you on Instagram. I love you. And I'm like, oh my God, I love you. Honestly, we came, became best friends. I ended up going to the event. She, she 
you know, help me out with my ticket. And afterwards, my son joined me, and uh, we all went for dinner afterwards. And and we just remained these fabulous friends. And life is, if you're present, right? If you're present, there's stuff that's supposed to happen. But if you're like, oh, my visa didn't work, forget it. I can't go. You, you see, like, there's, you've got to do that extra stretch. You know, uh, I love that Robert Browning quote, you know, a man's reach should extend his, his grasp or what's a heaven for. So just, like, push a little harder. Don't just be okay with something not working out. Go the extra mile. Reach out to that person. Keep going. And uh, uh, Nancy and I were, were talking about something one day, and she said, you know, you should really be speaking in the U.S. I think they would receive your message of harmony with other countries and empowerment. And I said, that'd be lovely. So she introduced me to uh, Blair at uh, Big Speak. You know, we met in L.A., and uh, he went back to Nancy, and he said, how has Canada kept this woman a secret for so long? <laughs> and uh, the rest is history. Uh, wow. I just feel like they're my family. And they give me the platform to go and share this message uh, and and affect companies and and um, you know keep that that mission going of that we have more power than we realize as citizens. And I think that's the other piece to wake people up to that you don't have to wait for government and you don't have to wait for Moses to come down from the clouds and give you permission to live your life because he's not coming. On that <laughs> note, Barb, thank you so much for joining us on the show. This was just fantastic getting to meet you. Oh, thanks for having me. You ask great questions, by the way. Thank you. We at Big Speak appreciate you listening to one of our many episodes. We hope you've enjoyed this exclusive and unique access behind the scenes of the keynote speaking world. Highlights from this episode are available on our website, bigspeak.com, along with the option to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. To learn more about this episode's guest or invite them to your special event, contact us at bigspeak.com.